Welcome to On DoD on Federal News Network. Now your host, Jared Serbu. Thanks for joining us this week. And like most of the rest of the world, the Defense Department has moved into an era where software is vitally important to pretty much everything the military does. And across the department, senior officials have made clear that they really want to join industry in adopting modern software development methodologies. But in DOD's case, there are some unique challenges to doing that. Some of the biggest ones have to do with the department's workforce. Not the workforce per se, but it turns out DOD knows very, very little about who makes up that workforce and what it takes to keep their skills sharp. To help solve some of those problems, the department turned to the RAND Corporation. The result, RAND built what could serve as DOD's first ever competency model for the software acquisition workforce, made numerous other recommendations along the way. On this week's show, we're going to go into detail on those recommendations and DOD's broader software development workforce challenges. Our guest is Bonnie Treisenberg. She's a senior engineer at RAND and part of the research team that released the report earlier this year. I think where I'd like to start is by laying out what what to me was one of the key takeaways from the report which is you know certainly there are a lot of software professionals in DoD but but not only do we not fully understand their knowledge and their skills we don't really even necessarily know who they are where they're located how many of them there are so so maybe you can just spend a little bit of time on the front end here talking with us about you know the size of that knowledge gap that we have and and what sorts of problems that poses so as you said um it's not just that we don't know um, who they are. We, we don't know basics about the demographic. We have no idea how many of them there are. Um, we don't know if when they spend their time, they're doing software full-time or they're doing software, you know, sort of as a side job. Um, we don't know what they're paid. Um, we don't know their educational background. We don't know how they're trained. We don't know how they get hired. We don't know how they get promoted. So at the very, you know, we don't know even the most basic things about this workforce from a workforce point of view. And the reason it matters, um, the first thing I would like to know personally about this workforce is what their educational background is. Are they actually coming into the DOD with a good solid background in software and all we have to do is make sure that we give them the opportunity to stay current in their field? Or are they really coming in with a much more diverse set of backgrounds where we have to do a lot of training just to establish sort of a base level of knowledge um, across the DOD. So that's the first thing I really want to know. Uh, um, if, if we're thinking that the reason we want to know this is to actually improve their competency and to be able to produce better software within DOD, I think that's the first thing you need to know. Yeah, and I guess one thing I wonder too is, considering the importance of software in basically everything now, how did that situation come to be? Because there are certainly many other parts of the acquisition system where the, the workforce is managed much more rigorously than this. I think it's just that um, historically DOD has been a hardware kind of organization. They they produce really cool things, right? And really complicated things too. And so the software thing sort of crept up on them, you know, Contractors started embedding more and more functionality into software because, you know, software can be changed. Also, it's nice that software doesn't weigh anything. 
And so you can get a lot of functionality for very little weight. And when you're thinking about rockets or airplanes or ships or even trucks, you know, weight matters. Um, and so I think the software part of it just sort of snuck up on them. And they've never made the transition to actually thinking of themselves as a software organization. And you find that even in industry, if, if you have an industry that has a, a long background in, you know, building real physical widgets, um, they, they often have a hard time transitioning their mindset to a software mindset. And you find those that do it successfully actually, you know, usually have a CEO or someone who comes along at some point in their history and makes a declaration to the workforce and says, hey, you know what, we used to be a hardware company, but we're a software company today. And nobody's ever done that in DOD, even though I think they may have passed that boundary quite a, quite, quite a few years ago. Um, nobody's ever come out and, and really made that sort of declaration there. Yeah, and it seems like one of the potential problems that would create is, you know, again, we don't know where the expertise is and how much there is on the government side. But if it's a low amount, you know, you potentially get into a situation where all the expertise is on the contractor side of the table when it comes time to actually negotiate contracts. Right. Um, I think that's a real fear. Um, I used to be one of those contractors in, in full disclosure here. I used to be a chief engineer for a major defense, um, a chief software engineer for a major defense company. And in my experience, I was often having to um, educate and teach my government counterparts um, and sort of bring them up to a level where we could have the discussions that needed to be had on those on those projects. Okay, so one of the main things that you're doing in this report is, is building at least the foundation of a competency model for the software workforce. Before we get into that, I think it's important to describe exactly what a competency model is. I mean, it's it's not it's not a foreign concept to DoD. It just doesn't exist for software. So so, I mean, what what are the components of a competency model in in the DoD context, and how would you use it for software? So it's actually bigger. The the concept of a competency model is bigger than DoD. It's actually used for, throughout the federal workforce, and it is the standard by which Office of Personal Management rate the skill level of their workforce. So if you're going out to hire someone, these competency models are something you refer to in your hiring literature when you're going to go out and promote. Again, these are the, the competency models are something they use in order to set promotion criteria. So very, very much in hiring and in promotion, the, the competencies are, have a, a, strong, a strong usage there. The other thing they use them for is for training, and they do these go out and do gap assessments against the competency model and say, does our workforce actually have these competencies, and at what level do they have these competencies? And then they use that competency, those gaps that it, you find, um, to redesign their training materials, to go out and, um, you know, bring in new classroom instruction, bring in new on-the-job um, instruction, and really structure an intervention to, to close those gaps um, that we have against the competency model. So it's a very formal thing. And as you might imagine with something that, that, that is that formal, the competency model has to be vetted before it is you know, standardized and used in that way. That's 
a little bit hard then for software because software is such a young field and everything, it feels like everything changes every three years. Right. Um, it's, it's not just that the hardware underneath changes every three years, it's that the actual uh, way we build software and the way we deliver software has been really rapidly evolving in, in, over the last 20 years, maybe even the last 30 years. So even if we can get a competency out there, model out there, um, DOD is probably, and, and even bigger than DOD, as I said, at the federal level, they're going to have to become more agile about keeping that up to date, or they're just going to be anchoring themselves in, in you know, some cement in the past, and, and again, the software workforce will suffer for that. And I want to go back to what you said at the beginning of that answer, because I think it's important. I mean, you're, you're focused on DOD here, because DOD is who asked you to do this study, but this sounds like it is a government-wide problem, the absence of uh, a rigorous software workforce model. Yeah, I, I think it is. Different um, federal agencies um, are better or worse at software um, because you can, you know, do things within your agency in in um, that go beyond the the federal model. But um, but if we're really talking the the basics of hiring and promotion, uh, the fact that we don't have that model, I think, is probably hindering even the most advanced of agencies. Bonnie Treisenberg is a senior engineer at the RAND Corporation and a co-author of the report we're discussing on challenges in DoD's software acquisition workforce. We'll come back and talk about the software competency model RAND developed for DoD as part of that report in just a minute. This is On DoD on Federal News Radio, part of the Federal News Network. I'm Jared Serviu. Back on Federal News Radio, part of the Federal News Network. This is on DOD. I'm Jared Serbu, talking with Bonnie Treisenberg, a senior engineer at the Rand Corporation. She's the co-author of a report Rand conducted earlier this year for DOD on how to improve its management of the software development workforce. So you said this is really challenging to build for software, and and yet you you, you came away with a report that recommends 48 different software acquisition competencies. <laughs> Talk, talk a bit about the back and forth with DoD as, as you came up with those. How, how challenging was it and what was the process um, by which you arrived at those? So it, it actually was an a interesting process. So they gave us the task and um, we went out first and we just surveyed how other model, software competency models um, in industry worked. And so for that, we looked at things like um, the software engineering competency model that's called the SWECOM. It's sort of an, an industry model. Um, there's also one that's the Guide to Software Engineering Body of Knowledge, the SWEBOC. Um, there's a Software Acquisition Training and Education Working Group. And um, they all had pretty high-level models, you know, um, they came out with 10 to 12 things you need to be able to do. And unfortunately, those 10 to 12 things were really high level. Here's, here's an example of one, you know, business case analysis. Applies or assesses the rationale and key parts of building a business case to support achievement of critical business objectives. Great. Did you learn anything from that? Do you know anything about the person you're going to go have to go hire in order to get that particular competency? Probably not. And so 
we came back with these, what we thought, you know, we had distilled out like maybe 12 high level things that, yeah, everybody agreed were really important for software. And our DOD counterparts on the team said, yep, you know, if we roll that out as the competency model, nothing will change within DOD. Um, you know, these things read like motherhood and apple pie. Good things to do, right? right? Great knowledge to have, but not specific enough to drive any kind of change within DOD. Um, the fear was that if that was what we rolled out, everybody would look at him and say, oh, yeah, I can do that. When in reality, perhaps they couldn't do that. Um, but who would know? Um, if you say you can, you can uh, apply rationale, um, who are we to argue with you and say you can't apply rationale? It, it's just not something that you can judge, right? Right. And also it sounded, um, you know, hey, I could say that about anything in DOD, any job in DOD. It, it doesn't sound like that's a software talent, right? So with that, we went back and we looked at some of the um, actual DOD career field functional competencies. And DOD currently has um, at least three career fields that we thought, well, this should be important to software. These people should have some um, software competency. So we looked at the competencies for program management uh, for engineering, and then for information technology. And there what we found is some fairly detailed competency models. Um, the program management career field, for instance, has 70 different competencies. Um, engineering has 75. Um, the IT folks have 42. So we said, well, maybe, you know, we really have to go broader than 12. Um, the reason we had originally done 12 is because there's a tool out there that Office of Personnel Management has that goes out to assess competencies within a workforce, and their tool can only support 12 entries. So we said, well, that tool constraint should not be what's driving us. Um, let's go out and develop something much more specific and more detailed, and where when you read it, you know this is a software-related competency, and it has it has more background and depth than these these top twelve motherhood things um, we had we had developed. So, to do that, what we did is we came up just within the RAN team first with a set of about I think thirty that we had developed from literature reviews and from you know, our own subject matter experts within house. And then we sat down and we had a series of workshops with subject matter experts from across the DOD. And it, each workshop we would work through about, um, we would take maybe, a, we would take maybe a third of the competencies and go through them in detail um, with these small groups. And we did um, three rounds of that with three different um, sort of buckets where we had bucketed the competencies into what were roughly uh, perhaps roles that um, we could envision within DOD for um, like technologists, program managers, or, or project manager types, and then um, verification and, and quality assurance type of roles. 
so a series, I think, of nine workshops in total, and every workshop, um, the list expanded. Every workshop, somebody would make a really good point of something, you know, that was special and unique and really deserved its own um, category. And over the process of that, it grew to 48. Uh, towards the end of the workshops, we stopped finding new things, so we really do think we are close to done. Um, but And then when we had that 48, we put them up on our website, and there was an email out to, I believe, about 200 individuals within DOD asking them to come and comment on them. So we had that comment period. Didn't produce any new competencies through that commenting period, but we did clarify make things less ambiguous. It, it was a good process in terms of, you know, just really scrubbing them a bit. Well, one thing we should clarify for listeners, just in case we have folks listening from outside government, when, when we talk about the software acquisition workforce, we're using the word acquisition in the way the government uses it, meaning not just shipping code one time or buying code one time, but but development, design, sustainment over the entire life cycle for as long as that code is out in the world. And the reason I raise that is it seems to me like one of the complications you might have faced in developing a model like this is that, you know, DOD is, is very adamant among its leadership ranks that it wants to mirror commercial, agile, DevSecOps best practices. And, and so there's some amount of code that's going to be developed and, and updated in that fashion. But at the same time, for some number of years, maybe decades, the department is still going to need to be maintaining software that was developed in the old waterfall way, um, probably written in programming languages that are obsolete at this point. And who knows <laughs> who knows how long that stuff's going to be around, but it's going to, the department's going to need to have people in both camps or maybe individuals who straddle both worlds. So, so what's the right way to think about that kind of dichotomy? Um, so first we maybe should define a couple of terms there for people. Um, so there's what people call a software life cycle. And it's, it's about the phases that you go through to develop software. And what's called the waterfall life cycle means you, um, you go through these phases in a time sequence where first I'm going to design all my software. Then I'm going to code my entire software up. Then I'm going to go test all of my software. And then I'll deliver it as a complete finished product, and that's called waterfall. Then on the DevOps kind of life cycle, they reject the, I'm going to do everything to completion in these phases. Instead, what they say, I'm going to take one little piece of software, one little functionality of my software, and I'm going to develop that to complete, to working code. And I'm actually going to deliver that little piece and then I'll grow um, the software from there. This is the so software is never done bit. mindset, yeah. This is the software is never done. This is the DevOps mindset. So we call that a life cycle, okay? Now, it is true that a lot of software got developed in the past in a waterfall-like life cycle, although one of the things I say in the report is, hey, we've never seen anybody actually develop in a waterfall. Mostly people were, people have always been chunking up their software into smaller bytes. Um, we used to call it like incremental build, thing, iterative development. 
What's changed is that with DevOps, you're chunking it up into very small bytes. It, it's like um, taking something that if we took a, a piece of uh, firewood, you know, people used to deliver the whole log. And then people said, no, I can't take the log, but could you chunk it up into little, you know, two-foot chunks? Now today with DevOps, we're, we're, we're actually delivering kindling, um, and maybe sometimes we're only delivering a toothpick. So that sort of gives you an idea of, of how things have changed. So in other words, um, the, the competencies you need for waterfall versus agile may not be as, as big as I suggested in my question. Right. It really is about the life cycle. And, and when you ch chop things into little pieces like this, there are a few competencies that become extremely important. Um, so being able to keep configuration management becomes hugely important. You have to know what you developed before, how it will interface and how it will grow. Um, and you have to understand your interfaces a lot better, these, these more internal interfaces, because now you have to stick all these little toothpicks together to make a whole thing, as opposed to before you just, you know, got your log. So there's a few competencies that it changes the emphasis for. But in, in general, I don't think it changes the competencies significantly. But as I said, there are, it, it's how you emphasize them, I think. But we do have the problem in DOD of old obsolete languages and the fact that people did used to deliver logs. And now if you want to go in and maintain that, you actually have to go find all those interfaces. You have to sort of recreate and re-engineer, reverse engineer, you know, how this thing got put together the first time so that you can, um, you can upgrade it and maintain it. And, and that's a difficult problem um, that will probably never go away, even with DevOps. Um, and even if we get really good at um, manages those interfaces and, and um, things, I think there's still always going to be a significant role for the reverse engineering of software. And it seems to me you also need people who, who know how to write COBOL or at least understand COBOL and ADA for some period of time. So is that a competency or is it narrower than that? Um, so actually, that is not such a big problem. The way in software engineers are trained today is they're trained in multiple languages. Mm -hmm. um, my son just went through an engineering computer science curriculum and every class he took was in a different language. So what you're learning today is the basics of language, right? What does it mean to be a language? What are the constructs of language? How do different languages put them together? And so what you find today is you'll, you find engineers who, who can readily pick up a language. And um, for something like Ada, which was very strongly typed, picking that up is, is quite straightforward. For something like COBOL, which goes back another generation or two, it, it's a little harder because we've evolved a theory of language since then. And since COBOL was developed before any of that, it, it really doesn't, it doesn't fit into any of the theories of language that we have, or at least not as nicely. So it depends on how far back you go, um, what the competency is. It's not in the language so much as it is in the theory of language. All right, I should have used assembly language instead of ADA as my example. 
That's Bonnie Treisenberg, senior engineer at the Rand Corporation. Another short break, and we'll come back and talk about some of the strategies to translate the competencies we've been talking about into DOD's training and education systems. This is On DOD on Federal News Radio, part of the Federal News Network. I'm Jared Serby. Thanks for listening to On DoD on Federal News Radio, part of the Federal News Network. I'm Jared Serbu. As we return to our discussion with Bonnie Treisenberg, a senior engineer at the Rand Corporation, we're talking about a report she co-authored earlier this year on how to improve DoD's management of its software acquisition workforce. We've talked about competencies a fair amount. I, I want to talk a little bit about how you actually inculcate those competencies into the workforce to the extent they're missing. And again, we don't know the extent to which they're missing because you do talk about education also in the report. So so take us through some some of that. What, what do we know about how strong DOD's existing institutions are in being able to teach the competencies that you propose and, and what, what needs to be done? So you can group the competencies that we developed in different ways. Um, as you said, there's 48 of them. Um, one of the ways we group them in one of the appendices of the report is in roles. Um, this notional idea of um, I'm going to have a career in software management, project management. I'm going to have a role as a, um, a software technical um, expert in um, as an enterprise or software architect. So when we split those into roles, um, one of the things we went back this past year, um, and we have a new report coming out soon, is we went back and, and we mapped from those roles to the competencies, and then from the competencies to the coursework that's currently offered within the Department of Defense for, for software. And the purpose of doing that is to see where we're strong already with the training that's available within DOD versus where we might be weak in terms of being able to train people for roles. Not surprisingly, we have pretty good coverage at the moment within DOD for the program manager, project manager type of role. So. Um, so that made us, you know, feel pretty good about the current um, the current uh, educational opportunities that are out there within DoD. Where we found um, big gaps is in the um, what we're calling the integration manager role, the folks who actually have to put all those little toothpicks together and test it and deliver it. Um, and to be able to do that in that evolutionary manner that we were talking about, that DevOps-type manner, um, there the curriculum is very weak. The other place the curriculum is very weak is um, anything to do with software technology. So, you know, the base, the really sort of the algorithms of software, right, and the architecture of software. What makes a good software architecture? You'd be tough. You'd be tough to learn that from the DoD curriculum. I, in fact, I don't think you could learn that from the DoD curriculum. Uh, similarly, you can learn maybe a little bit about machine learning and things like artificial intelligence, just sort of a surface level familiarity with the concepts, but you can't learn the competencies within the DoD curricula. 
So we're starting to be able to use the comp the competency model that way to at least look at um, sort of this idea of of what roles is DoD currently training for and where are they weak? Yeah, I I guess one thing I wonder there is to the extent those those competencies are missing in the educational system. To what extent do you need to build them at a place like DAU versus sending people outside? That's um, a topic of hot debate uh, currently, um, and there's also a debate over what the service academies should be offering. So you have Defense Acquisition University, which is what DAU stands for, um, and we could say that maybe DAU is doing their job, right? They should be just really training that. Um, management role and that sort of surface understanding of, of things. And perhaps the DOD service academies, you know, the Air Force Academy, um, Air University, places like that, maybe that's where the more technical roles should be being taught, um, or at least the, the verification roles, the how do you put things together and test and deliver it role, maybe that's something that should be coming from the service academies. And and then let's just leave the true technologist roles. Let's just go out into private, um, you know, educational institutions and or these online, you know, large online learning courses and let them teach that. Uh, maybe they're the best people to teach that. So we're not trying to use the competencies really to influence that debate. Um, what we're trying to do is say, no matter what, you need to have a way to cover these. So I don't think the competencies, as I said, play a role in, in where they should be taught, but what we're trying to highlight is um, whether they're being taught or not. Yeah, and I, I, I guess one factor that, that goes into answering that question is to what extent are the competencies you need to work in DOD, DOD-specific? Um, we also are trying to address that issue with the new work. Uh, one of the things we did is we went out and um, looked at the type of software that is being developed under major programs. And we do find that the type of software that's being developed within DOD is different than the vast majority of software that's being developed in the private industry. Um, within DOD, if we just segregate with between what we call embedded code, code that runs in a ship, on an airplane, um, you know, in a tank, um, in a weapon system, versus um, the software that runs, say, on your laptop or on a server somewhere in a back uh, office, we find the ratio is about, you know, maybe as high as 80% embedded, and only 20% is that more application-level um, software that we have on our, um, on our laptops or our server software. And, and that's different than what's out there in the industry. Uh, you might think about DOD software and think, well, it's the true Internet of Things, only they're really big things, not little... It's not, it's not a thermostat on your wall, it's, it's a weapon system. So it's, it's the internet of really big things is what DOD is building. And, and I do think it's a, that means they need 
slightly different skill sets than um, industry needs. You see the difference, especially when we start to think about the safety criticality and the security criticality of the software. Um, the type of security and safety that I need on my laptop is very different than the type of security and safety I need in a weapon system, in something that's going to drop a bomb or, or fire a bullet. Yeah, this makes me wonder if there are some analogies here to the cyber workforce, because I, I think the department has recognized that, especially on the offensive cyber side, there are things that the workforce needs to learn. This would be the uniformed workforce, obviously, that they're, they're just... I mean, those educational opportunities are just not available on the outside, which I think is one of the reasons why they have realized they need to teach some of that stuff in the service academies. Yeah, I think um, you can find courses in safety critical and security critical. Um, I think the drive towards autonomous automobiles will drive some of that back into the um, the curricula at the at the in the in the private industry and and in. Um, public education. So I think there's forcing functions out there within private industry that are going to force a reemergence of that kind of curricula in um, outside of DOD. Um, but at the moment, DOD's kind of unique, and they really do have to be in the driver's seat on some of this. Bonnie Treisenberg is a senior engineer at the RAND Corporation and a co-author of the report we're discussing on challenges in DOD software acquisition workforce. We'll wrap up our conversation after one more break on Federal News Radio, part of the Federal News Network. This is On DoD. I'm Jared Servit. Back on Federal News Radio, part of the Federal News Network, this is On DoD. I'm Jared Serbu. A few more minutes with Bonnie Treisenberg, senior engineer at the RAND Corporation. We're talking about a report RAND developed for DoD earlier this year on building competencies and identifying the makeup of its software development workforce. All right, in our last few minutes here, I want to shift to kind of the third bucket of the report, which is along the lines of sustaining the software workforce over the long term once you've got it identified. But but as you say, you've got to identify it first. So what are your right. recommendations for how DOD should start on that front? So we, um, we recommended in the report that um, the first thing we have to do is go out and ID it. And what we wanted to do was a census of the three career fields that we think the software folks are most likely to be found in. And that's Engineering, program management, and um, and information technology. In total, that workforce is about 50,000 people. Um, what we wanted to do was just go out with a pretty simple one-question survey that says, hey, are you part, you know, it has a list of activities, um, pretty specific list of activities, and says, just one question says, do you do any of these? And could you identify yourself? And then we would put that as an indicator into the personnel record. And from that, then we could get all kinds of information about those people um, because the personnel records have their educational background, they have their pay, they have their promotion, et cetera. So that's what we, we recommend. Um, it's what we wanted to do. Uh, and the department actually tasked us to go out and do that. Unfortunately, uh, for a whole variety of reasons, we were not able to actually um, accomplish that. 
And so what we did instead this year is we went out and got a, a snapshot from some of the – the DOD does have some software centers. So there were places um, we knew we could go where we would find a lot of software people. Um, not that we would find all the software people, but we would at least find enough to sort of get a snapshot and a feel for um, who these folks were, what their educational background was, what their pay field, pay grade was, et cetera. So we were able to do that. Um, we got a snapshot of about 2,000 folks, and from that um, we're now um, making a few tentative right recommendations to the department on, on different things they should do. Um, to really get a handle on the workforce, you have to do that census. It, what we came out from this year again saying is it, it's just, it just reinforced to us how important it is um, to actually know who in the department is doing this software, who, who is actually out there developing this critical part of, 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 this, of our systems. As I think you say in the report, that, that overall census beyond just the sample work that you did is so big that DOD's got to do it. RAND can't do it. So no. it's going to be a lot of work. Um, what's your sense, based on all the interactions you've had with DOD on this front so far, what's your sense about how willing, motivated department leadership is about standing up a system like this, doing all the front-end work that would be necessary, and appointing a functional leader to run it over the long term? I think we did not at any point in our work feel that anyone was not supportive of the effort. People understand this is important. What we found over the last year was that there were just other more important things. And so we couldn't find anyone willing to spend the political capital that it takes to make this happen this last year. And it wasn't, as I said, that they didn't think it was important and that they weren't willing. Um, it's just you have only a limited amount of political capital for these folks, and they really do have to choose where to spend it. It is it is a limited resource. And and this past year, just the stars did not align to, to get us a champion at the level needed to make this happen. But you can at least start doing some of those data calls before you start making big policy moves, I would imagine, right? I think that with the limited amount of data we did get this last year and the snapshot of the workforce we did get, I think that will improve the odds of, of getting the larger data call done. I, I do. Um, I think we've gotten enough information that is uh, perhaps not what people were expecting to find, that now they'll say, oh, this is really important. Uh, you know, it's, it, there really are things I don't know and I really need to know about this workforce. Um, one last thing I wanted to ask you, it's a little bit out of place here, but, but, it, but it seems like one potential complication here might be is that the quote-unquote software acquisition workforce spans some different personnel systems, right? I mean, you've got the, the GS system, the civilian world, you've got the military side, to some extent, probably contractor employees. How, how difficult does that, you know, the existence of those multiple different systems make it to impose a competency model um, across the workforce writ large? So we're already finding that it just, it makes it very hard to find the folks. Um, mm -hmm. 
the people who actually collected the data we got this last year told, came back and told us that some of the data could only be collected by just talking to the people themselves, that they couldn't get it from um, any of their existing databases, and, and they had access to all of those databases. So we know it's a problem just in terms of identifying the people. I would think it's then applying the competency model to them will be even more difficult. It helps that the competency model is at the Office of Personal Management as opposed to the DOD, so it will cover, you know, a wider range of of, of people. It will it will cover both the contractors, um, the direct contractors to the DOD. What it won't cover is the the contractors who are who are working under DOD prime contracts or or large subcontracts. So, so it helps there, but I think it's going to be a problem. Just knowing the problems it created in collecting the data, we can pretty safely say that it will be a problem in applying the competency model. But a lot of the value of having the competency model is just having a reference, um, having something to, to refer against. And so it's not that we nef definitely need to like impose it on people. But to be able to just have a common language and a common set of standards to go back out and reference against, I think, has its, has its value. We shouldn't necessarily think of that its only value is, is in being able to impose a standard. Yeah, I shouldn't have said impose. That was a poor choice of words. Just to clarify on the OPM piece, though, it, if it is housed at OPM, can it reach the military side of the workforce? My, my, my impression and my experience is that OPM doesn't usually get involved in military right. career fields. Right, it does not. Um, but the department's adoption of it within will get the military side, and the OPM adoption will get the civilian and, and part of the contractor workforce. Bonnie Treisenberg is a senior engineer at the RAND Corporation. She joined us to talk about the report she and her co-authors at RAND developed for DOD earlier this year on how to overcome some major challenges in the department's software development workforce. We'll post a link to the full report at federalnewsnetwork.com slash on DOD. And if you missed any of this conversation, you can find this week's full show at that link also. You can also find us in podcast form if that's your preference. Subscribe to On DoD on Podcast One, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. That's it for this week's edition of On DoD. Thanks as always for tuning in. I'm Jared Serbia. So long. You've been listening to On DoD on Federal News Network. Tune in Wednesday mornings at eleven, or subscribe to this show on iTunes or Podcast One. To be your best every day. You need proven quality sleep every night. Science proves your best sleep is vital to your mental, emotional, and physical health. And that's where the Sleep Number Bed comes in. And let me tell you, ever since I've had it, my Sleep IQ score is just going higher and higher. And did you know 8 out of 10 couples say that one of them sleeps too hot or too cold? Science tells us regulating your sleep temperature leads to higher quality sleep. For many couples... Temperature struggles are a real challenge. So here are some tips to help you both sleep just right. Look for beds designed with temperature benefits such as the new Sleep Number Climate 360 Smart Bed that actively warms and cools each side so you both sleep blissfully comfortable. And now save 40% on the Sleep Number 360 Special Edition Smart Bed. Plus, special financing for a limited time. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com slash podcast one. Sleep Number. 
the official sleep and wellness partner of the National Football League. Subject to credit approval, minimum monthly payments required. See sleepnumber.com for details.